I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen, and I am here with... Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. We are here to talk about the IFB cult, the Independent Fundamental Baptist cult, and I want to waste no time getting into today's episode. (laughs) Sure you don't. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I want to waste no time. Okay. uh, If you want to know what we're on about with that, (laughs) subscribe to the Patreon because we go on a rant for like 10 minutes beforehand and I definitely did waste nothing (laughs) about not about absolutely nothing. (laughs) We had we had some poignant statements in there. Um, But anyway, I want to waste no time into getting into today's episode because we do have a lot of ground to cover. Um, because this is episode four of our five-part series, The First Family of Fundamentalists. So two episodes ago, we talked about the later years and death of Jack Hiles and the, the deep grief of his congregation after their leader died. And so what, Jack Hiles died in like uh, 2001. Mm-hmm. And as we discussed last time, his son David was not at all suited to take over his place due to the numerous scandals and crimes which he had committed in a very public manner. So Jack Howes dies in 2001. Who is the guy who's going to take over as the cult leader? So when it became obvious that David was no longer the top option for the job, uh, Jack (laughs) Howes had begun grooming his son-in-law, Jack Scott, to be like his second runner-up kind of guy. So around the time of David's scandal at Miller Road Baptist Church. Which one was that one? Oh, uh, Miller Road Baptist is where he went directly after he left Hammond. That's the place with the the briefcase. Yeah, place with the briefcase. Oh, that one's skeezy. Uh, it's all skeezy. Oh, skeezy. What are you talking about? It's literally yeah. all skeezy. 
That one, see, that one felt especially skeezy to me. That was the worst one to you, huh? But yeah, <laughs> okay. Not, not, no, that one wasn't the worst one, but that one, that one in particular, felt pretty skeezy to uh, me. Fair enough. But like around that same time, Jack Scott is promoted from being just a teacher at Hiles Anderson to being in an administrative role at Hiles Anderson. And then uh, we talked about in the Battle of 1989 episode, uh, Scott had proved his loyalty to Hiles in a couple major ways during that time. And he was made vice president of Hiles Anderson College. uh, And he was just in his early 30s at the time. Through the 1990s, do we see Scott have his rank increased and his role amplified? No, actually, Scott remains vice president of Hiles Anderson for the next decade or so. So he's like lying in wait, basically, for for his time to come. Because the the vice president of HAC, it's it's like, yeah, it's a placeholder role. Uh, It's it's someplace that you would put somebody who's going to rise to a position of power eventually. One theory as to why this was, people think that it's possible that Hiles was experiencing minor heart attacks for some time before the larger heart incident that caused a surgery and killed him. Uh, There's no evidence for that, but people who knew Hiles and knew his personality think that this is pretty likely. Yeah. So is there anything in particular, though, that Scott did to earn himself this sort of responsibility from his father-in-law? So there are actually there are a few different things that we can gather, a couple different stories that Scott told himself. And then there are stories that were told about him as well. Uh, the stories about him are coming from several different sources, and almost all of those people have removed themselves from the IFB. Yeah, and like I said before in this series, I'm not including stories that are just hearsay from one person. If I just read a story on an anonymous online forum, I'm not going to use it on this podcast unless I can back it up, unless there's four or five people telling the same story, or unless I know someone who has told the same story, preferably. I mean, that's just good good journalism. Right. And if it is something that's just like, oh, well, you know, five anonymous commenters on the internet in different places said the same thing, I'll be transparent about that and say, oh, well, you know, people say or the story is. I won't claim it as truth. Yeah. And you you never know if like it could be the same person five times. Right. So I try to be I try to be upfront about where I get this information. A lot of it I have a personal source for. You know, I knew somebody who saw this thing happen. In a lot of cases, because I know so many, you know, people from the IFB and people from the church. You, so you you guys remember in episode one of this series when we told that story about um, how women were dropping their wedding rings in the collection plate. Uh, so actually, recently um, we saw an account of it where it was actually described as like an extreme peer pressure situation where people were expected to sign their whole paycheck yeah people were expected to sign over their whole paychecks to the church and then give away anything like jewelry trinkets anything that had value and then loudly declare that they quote unquote gave it all like they'd shout i gave it all and if you weren't doing it you weren't like yeah right well that's a great example because with that story was true people did do that thing but it was told yeah it was told in a way to obscure the true nature of the horrible peer pressure that led them to do it yeah and like it, it eventually became like a regular thing right i think is, it was is like for months what I got that they would that. have one of those sundays every month or something like that which which just sounds awful frankly but, but you know, that did actually happen. It was just mischaracterized. The stories that we're going to hear about Scop, they're kind of coming from the other side. So people who personally knew him before he became pastor, 
uh, people who have been telling stories about him the same way since before 2012, which is telling, as you'll find out later. Uh, and, and stories about himself withhold judgment until you see what I'm trying to say, what, what truths about him I'm trying to pull out of stories about himself. You know, just like, just like Heil's stories, what you say about yourself means something a little deeper than your literal words a lot of the time. Whether or not even what you're, you're saying about yourself is true, it still has to do with how you want people to perceive you. Right. And, and how we're trying to, you know, express what the, what the perception of Scop was for people who weren't there. Yeah. So what what are these stories? So first, the first thing I want to bring up, I think Scop was pliable and I think he was willing to do things Hiles way. So uh, for example, in Dating with a Purpose, which we briefly mentioned in a, a pre- previous episode, uh, Scop tells a story about allowing Hiles to delay his plans for marriage to Hiles' youngest daughter, Cindy. In in that story, Hiles said, well, no, well, you can marry her, but wait a year. And Scop just said, okay. Scop also taught preaching at Hiles Anderson for years. So that would mean he was using Hiles' own curriculum instead of a lot of his own opinions about preaching or pastoring. Uh, I also have a clip from one of Scop's sermons that I want to play in a few minutes. And I think you'll notice that Scop's preaching sounds remarkably similar to his father-in-law's. It's the tone. It's the content. He really does sound like a Hiles clone in a way. You know what I think that I just thought of is super weird? What? Is that like, you know how I talked about earlier about how Hiles was essentially cloning himself? Yeah. Yeah. So Hiles was essentially like making copies of himself, using his college to make copies of himself. One of like the the best and most successful copy of himself married his daughter. Oh yeah, that is a detour we're gonna have to take at some point. Yeah, that's I don't know. I I just figured like <laughs> yeah, the the IFB has a lot of very weird uh, weird connotations in that department. Very biblical connotations in that department. Very, it's very unfortunate. Um. Well, anyway, uh, you're, you're right, though, that and I think what we're looking at here is Hiles could not clone himself effectively in his own son because he wanted his son to be that clone, to be that guy who took over. And when that didn't work out, he went for the next best thing because Cindy, Cindy is the youngest Hiles child, and she is often referred to as her father's favorite child. They were very close. She wrote the biography of him that I mentioned before the the very long biography of him she wrote that um she's a she's a talented writer and and that's what she takes after her dad she's a she writes kind of like him she's a very good writer and um i think hiles kind of did the second best thing you know he went with the man who married his daughter who he was very close to in in addition to being a hiles clone scop also uh proved his loyalty in a couple main ways so how do you do that well we told a story before from the book, the book Profaned Pulpit by Jerry Kafitz. Uh, that was in the episode of the Battle of 1989. Uh, Scott and Kafitz had a, a deep friendship and a business partnership that abruptly ended after Kafitz admitted to having read a book that was critical of Jack Hiles. There's, there's, a, there's another story other than that um, where Scott just abruptly ended a friendship. Um, there's another story that kind of goes to show his loyalty. And it also comes from, from Kafitz's book, which is worth reading if you ever want to dig super deep into this. Kafitz was present 
at Scop's 30th birthday party, which was also, of course, attended by Jack Hiles and the rest of the Hiles family, with the notable exception of Beverly Hiles, but Kayfitz, along with many, many other people, say that not seeing her with the rest of the family was pretty normal. We talked about that in the Dave episode. So Hiles had brought a present for Scop, and in his usual kind of over-the-top mannerisms, he made a big show of a, a big presentation of handing over his gift. So Scop uh, opens up this present. Uh, it's a it's a huge leather gun belt and holster with a forty four Magnum chrome revolver in the holster. That's kind of a bitching gift, man. I mean, or like, was it? I mean, they didn't duel, did they? <laughs> no. I feel like Jack Hiles is the type of guy who would be really into dueling. Okay, maybe, maybe, but no. Uh, so what happens with the gun belt is Hiles starts demanding that Scop put on the gun belt and show it off. And like in front, so it's all the friends and family there at Scop's house. He's the host, and like Hiles is like the guest of honor because he's Hiles. And uh, he's like, "Oh, put the gun belt on. We want to see it." So Scott tries to put on the gun belt, but it's huge. It's like twice too big for him. And Hiles like busts out laughing and he says, no, oh, you're going to have to wrap it around twice, Jack. I mean, Jack Hiles is mocking Scott, but who had like a 29 inch waist at the time. Scott always gave the impression of being taller and thinner than he actually was. So it's almost like an Abraham Lincoln build, if that makes sense. Like he looked, he looked taller and ganglier and skinnier than he really was. And he, he always used to call him scrawny. Hiles was derailing Scott's milestone birthday. So Hiles just like decides out of nowhere to just mock Scott in front of everybody. And he'd purposely chosen a gift that would give him an opportunity to humiliate Scott and make his birthday party all about himself instead. So, so Scop just was. What might be worse is Scop just submits to this behavior. Like there are countless examples. Uh. If you just fished through a bunch of sermon tapes of Hiles, you would find so many examples of Hiles mocking, humiliating, generally using Scop as his verbal whipping boy. So Hiles did this to everyone on his staff, just about. But Scop was one of his favorite people to pick on. So in that, even in that book uh, by Jerry Kafitz, there there are other stories about. Scott just allowing Hiles to mock him and generally run his life. Uh, but I think I've made my point. Hiles was confident that Scott would do whatever he told him to do. So basically, like, if you let Jack Hiles treat you terribly, you're essentially paying dues for when he wants to put you in the driver's seat. Right. Letting Hiles bully you is a way that you gain status. Um, I think what Hiles wanted was a ministry that would outlive him, like a church that still functioned after his death, the same way that it did when he was alive with very few changes, really the way that it was set up, anybody that Hiles groomed or anybody that Hiles asked to be the next leader would jump at the chance. So Hiles could have anybody he wanted, and he was looking for a specific type of man, you know, someone with the charisma and the hard-headedness to, to do what Hiles had done and keep the place on track and keep the place in line but also someone who would submit to Hiles' way of doing things so that the Hiles' way would live on. So like I said, um, I have speculated and continue to speculate that Jack Hiles was a narcissist. But one of the things that like I've read is a quality of narcissists is the desire to quote-unquote live forever. Because basically they believe that they are greater than normal humans. 
in death, everybody is equal. So one of the ways that they can say, oh, I'm better than and greater than everybody else is to be like, I will never die. One of the ways that they accomplish this is by founding institutions or things or whatever that are named after them that like are there to glorify them. Anyway, so like we get to 2001 Mm -hmm. and Jack Hiles has died from heart disease and the congregation deeply mourns his passing. And I take it that Jack Scoff is a shoe in to be a successor. I think the best answer to that, I wanted you to hear this video. Um, It's Scoff's sort of job interview sermon for the people of First Baptist Church. In the sermon, if you listen to the whole thing, which I don't suggest, um, you would you would hear him say that it's about two weeks after Heil's death. Uh, so I'm, I picked a clip for you. The first voice that you'll hear is Johnny Colston. Uh, he's introducing the speaker, and then you're going to get to hear the crowd reaction to being told that Scott will be preaching for them that morning. Johnny Colston's the guy who said he'd drink the poison, right? Yes, that's the guy. Uh, so his job was he would always read the scripture. So his job, he would like get up, read the scripture, say a prayer, and then the pastor would start their sermon. So in this case, he's reading the scripture and then introducing the guest preacher because Brother Hiles is dead. So he's introducing Jack Scott. Please turn in your Bibles to the eighth chapter of Romans, beginning with verse 26 in your Schofield Reference Bible, page 1202. 1202. Brother Scott is preaching for us this morning. He's just one of the best young men in the nation today. A good preacher, a very sound Bible doctrine teacher, and just is someone we just could not very well do without. So you heard the congregation applaud uh, when Scott was introduced. And that was a really, really unusual reaction for a regular service. That's not something that was done in this church. Wow. They are clapping like they are singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot on a bus (laughs) or at a teen service. Yes. And and again, this is super atypical. I think you, you hear from that. These people are hoping that Scott will be their next pastor. They're really hanging on every word that he's about to say to them. You also hear Colston go on for quite a few seconds there, uh, praising Scott. So not only is the crowd super eager to hear Scott speak, you've also got this familiar voice in Brother Colston, someone who worked closely for Jack Hiles, and he's praising Scott to the crowd. And so I assume that they vote him in. Yeah. Uh, so we we talked about the grief that the people at Hiles Anderson and First Baptist felt when, when Hiles died and how lost they felt. And it was made clear to them that Scop was the person whom Hiles had chosen to succeed him. Uh, so they voted him in as pastor with a 96% to 4% margin. I wonder if those 4% knew something that we don't. Well, you can find 4%ers, um, as they call themselves now, speaking about things uh, now in 2020. But that's a story for a little bit later. So when this happened, you're like seven, eight years old. Like, what do you remember from this time? So I had literally just turned eight because Hyle's funeral was on my eighth birthday. I don't remember too much about Scott's super, super early years. Um, I knew that my father had gone to college with him, and I knew who he was kind of peripherally. Um, I knew that there were some IFB pastors who didn't like Scott and didn't support him being pastor, but 
that it was kind of brushed off. So at the time, what would have been said about that is um, those people are still grieving. They wouldn't like anybody who wasn't Hiles himself come back from the grave. Huh. Right. So it was played off as like, oh, no, they're grieving. They just miss Hiles. They wouldn't like anybody. Okay. So basically from here on forward, this is all stuff that you don't really have to dig into outside sources for because this is stuff that you actually personally remember happening. Right. Well, what's really the thing is from here on out, I only get closer to the story. So if you think of it like like the analogy of a stadium concert, Scott taking the position of pastor at First Baptist, I saw that like from the 300s level in a stadium concert. Uh, By the end of the by the end of Scott's story, it's things that I saw like I was in the second row. When I was seven, my first rock concert was Ringo Starr and the All Star Band. Oh, that's cool. Sheila E. played the drums. That was very cool. But when you were seven, your first rock concert was church sermons. Yeah. So when I was when I was eight, seven, week of my eighth birthday, well, yeah, my rock star hero died, and another one took his place. And um, just to complete that analogy, by the end of this story, if I had been one step closer, I would have pretty much had a backstage pass. And knowing what we know about the habits of IFB pastors, I think it's probably a good thing that you didn't have a backstage pass. True that. I assume that Scoff's ministry uh, runs pretty much the same manner as Jack Hiles. So in the first half of his pastorate, Scott very much continues to act like a Hiles clone. So he's like giving these sermons, he's publishing books. So Scott uses Hiles publications to his advantage. Hiles was known for being a prolific writer. Uh, He wrote dozens of books. He wrote manuals on church work and books about theology, books about doctrine and poetry and personal stories. He just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, dictated all of these books. Um, And Scott continues that tradition. Uh, So he used Hiles publications to publish his own books. He also pressured his wife, Cindy, to write her own books and have those published through Hiles publications. Uh, Scott also solicited manuscripts from other people on staff. He really tried to build up Hiles publications in those early years. So it's just like how in the 1990s, he wrote that excellent dating manual, Dating with a Purpose. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Scott was publishing you know, his thoughts before he even became pastor with Dating with a Purpose. Publishing books became a major source of income for the church. Um, the church or the Hiles estate of whom his wife was a part or himself or who really knows because just exactly like we talked about with Hiles, it's really unclear exactly where the money went with the Hiles publications stuff. Uh, Anyway, Scott made a controversial move with Hiles publications in 2006. Uh, He opened a coffee shop and bookstore on the church campus so that there would be a brick and mortar location for Hiles publications to try to drive sales up. How is this controversial? Oh, sorry. Uh, so, yeah. uh, so a coffee shop is controversial. Controversial because to these IFB preachers, this comes off as liberal. You know, like like a non denominational church might have a coffee shop in their church, or maybe they were secretly all watching Friends and they're like, "That's where Rachel works." <laughs> <laughs> no, so Scott's focus from two thousand one to two thousand six uh, really seemed to be to be building up First Baptist Church and building up their own ministries like Hiles Publications and other things. So towards the end of those years, Scott makes some other changes. Uh, He sets up a church website. He improves the the graphic design on flyers and things that are passed out by the church. And then he also builds a hugely expensive, very on-trend, modern-looking new church auditorium. 
So all of this kind of seemed to set off the the old guard IFB people. And he was accused of modernism because by modernism, they mean any update at all to his church and anything that Jack Hiles never did. I'm still having so much difficulty here envisioning a world where having a coffee shop and a bookstore is somehow controversial. So, so Scott also lost a lot of popularity because of the new auditorium he built. The new building was far more expensive than the church could actually afford. And even after he solicited millions of dollars from large donors like Russell Anderson and Jack DeCoster, who helped build Hiles Anderson, the church found themselves deep in debt by the time that the new auditorium was unveiled at Pastor School 2006. So I can't imagine this going well, because every time I watch a crime movie, whenever they find themselves owing somebody some money, they always have to do something really shady to get out of it. Oh my God, I totally forgot that part of the story. (laughs) So now that you mention it, there was a certain insurance company started through First Baptist Church around this time. Oh my god. So wait, what kind of what kind of insurance were they were they selling soul insurance? Like if you don't go to if you don't get into heaven, they'll pay out a million dollars to your next of kin. Uh no, this was pretty much just a straight up Ponzi scheme uh that benefited the guy who ran it and also paid dividends to Scop. For me like somehow for me, this is less surprising than David Hiles continuing to be a predator literally everywhere that he goes. Yeah. But This doesn't seem like enough to get them out of debt because they are literally bleeding their members dry for decades. So how are they going to continue to generate revenue? I mean, I agree that the members are already kind of done as much as they can do. Like all the wedding rings that are going to be sold have been sold. And Scop has a lot of influence, but he is no Jack Hiles when it comes to those crazy fundraising methods. Um, So another thing that Scott does in the second half of his pastorate, so starting around 2006, is he pivots his focus to missions. So you're going to have to follow me through some logic here, but I really think there's a potential financial motive at the end of this. Uh, Scott invents or maybe claims to invent, I'm not sure, the idea of team missions. And this is something that I was literally actually there for. So at Pastor School 2006, the same year that they are showing off the giant fancy new auditorium that they owe millions of dollars on, Scop has this big focus on missions. And there are all these heartrending messages every night. And Scop introduces the first missions team that First Baptist Church will send. So instead of sending one family all alone to the missions field, Scop has this idea that he can hand pick multiple families and send a team of 30 or more people to the same place. So they often pick like a difficult, quote unquote, difficult mission field like China or Ghana. And that allows this team to work together and start a church on the missions field more quickly because they've got more hands on deck. So isn't it highly illegal to be a missionary in China? Yes, it is. And I know a lot of things and I'm going to choose to say a few things on this particular recorded episode of our podcast. Yeah, so while China's general unwillingness to tolerate freedom of religion is a huge problem, they should definitely not be uprooting families and sending them to dangerous places where they might get into political trouble from doing this. Like, it's super illegal there to do this. Like, they're sending people there to... It's Well, yeah, and I know for... I know for a fact that at least at one point, they were sending families with small children. What the... Did you just bleep yourself? I Good did. Job. I did. But what I what I can say is, First Baptist has a very creative way of getting around 
places where they're not supposed to be missionaries. And they have ways of getting coded information out of places where there are not supposed to be missionaries. And what I can also say is like this lent an air of urgency to certain of these missions teams. So that that brings me to part of the point that I want to make. They're like sending people there on purpose because they think people will give them more money? Yes. For the... Yes, because they you send people to bad places, quote unquote, or dangerous places, or these people are going to have to basically be spies in, in other countries, and these people are going to have a very dangerous job, and if they get caught, they're going to get spies thrown Je- into oh, jail. My. Oh, Spies for Jesus is a whole thing, man. It's a whole thing. I can't even start. But it lends urgency. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So number one, if you're a regular old family at First Baptist Church or like a regular couple graduating from Hiles Anderson, if Scott called you into his office, which he did, and asked you, so so say you're graduating from Hiles Anderson and you actually just want to be like an assistant pastor and your wife wants to be a Christian school teacher. Uh, Scott could call you in his office one night after church and say, you guys are engaged. Well, I want you to join my missions team to Thailand and husband's going to be an assistant pastor in Thailand and wife can be a teacher in Thailand. It's seen as like a high honor for Scott to handpick you like that. And you could be pressured into join, joining this missions team. Although neither one of you ever intended to be a missionary to begin with. And you couldn't say no. I mean, you could, but then, you know, if you turn down a missions team, you might have trouble finding work at another IFB church because you turn down something that Scop as the pastor asks you to do. It sounds more like getting picked for the Hunger Games than it does. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, again, I'm not going to say everything that I know on this particular episode, but uh, I know that there were there were small children sent to China and sent to Ghana, uh, other unsafe places. Um, and yeah, if Scott picked you, you did feel absolutely obligated to go. What I know of one man who had a successful construction business in the U.S., who was asked to give it up and go to Ghana so he could build church buildings there. So how does this make the cult money? There are two ways that I think this was financially benefiting the church. So not only does Scott need many more missionaries to be willing to send wherever the heck he tells them to go, he also needs much, much, much more money to send all of these extra missionaries. So this new and exciting idea of team missions that Scott invented uh, allows Scott to ratchet up the fundraising and really pressure people to, to give money to missionaries. So an unconfirmed source, but seemingly solid, that I saw claims that Scott raised as much as $7 million yearly for missions. Yeah. So pastor schools and youth conferences became extreme high-pressure uh, recruiting seminars, so they'd not, they would not just ask you to give money for people who were about to join them, they would they would parade these mission teams out on stage uh, and and make them stand there while they took up an offering for them. And like you know, so not only are you are you being extremely pressured to give money to these teams, uh, you're also being pressured to quote unquote surrender uh, to be a missionary. So with this like extreme high pressure, you get more kids and more young adults who are giving into that pressure. Uh, who are, you know, quote, giving their life to God and or surrendering to God's call. So I'm going somewhere with this. But I want to tell you what happened to me first before I make my grand conclusion here. Okay. So I was at a pastor school, and I think it was either 2006 or 2007. So I was 13 or 14. 
And the big push at the end of the conference was to get everyone to sign these little cards saying that you would give two years of your life to be a missionary at some point. I don't think I can properly describe the the pressure that was on me at that age. Scott had everybody who was signing this card uh, go to the front and stand kind of shoulder to shoulder on the steps of that big platform at First Baptist Church. And of course, I, I went to the front and signed a card. So actually, fun fact, one of our listeners was in my church group, and I know that I stood right next to him at the front of the auditorium, so he might know who he is. <laughs> uh, Scott had us all stand on the steps so we could like have our picture taken, and then also like they would know who was up there, and they could like contact you later. I lived for years in like terrible, sickening guilt that I had signed that card and never followed through on it uh, until I realized how completely horrendous and unethical it is to coerce a 14-year-old child to sign years of their life away on a contract that's not a legal contract. Right. And I mean, you told me that your dad sort of pulled you aside and said, I'm not sure you know what you're like getting yourself into. Maybe yeah. You shouldn't do this. Yeah, he did. Uh, and I thought in my brainwashed mind that he was like testing my commitment to God. Turns out he was just trying to remind his actual literal child that I was legally, ethically, and morally too young to sign any kind of contract. Thank God somebody in the IFB had the slightest bit of common sense. Yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't me that had that common sense. But what do you expect from a 14-year-old who's, you know, crying so hard? I could barely stand because I'm also sleep-deprived and running completely on coffee. and Coffee and mayonnaise? Coffee and Mountain Dew. You mean Mountain Moo? <laughs> no, no, I do not. No, I, I survived those weeks on, like, Coffee, Mountain Dew, and Atomic Fireball candies because they are like super spicy and they'll keep me awake. I, I I went through these weeks like I'm away from home. I'm sleep deprived. I haven't had a proper meal in a week. And I've had images of like starving children pumped into my brain all week. So of course I went and signed a card. It's coercive. It's It's terribly abusive and coercive the way that they set these things up. Well, the thing is that all of these people who signed those little cards or gave their life to God during these high-pressure tactics at Scott's missions conferences, turns out all of those people need to go to Bible college to prepare for eventual missions work and to find a spouse who will be your partner in your missions work. So where, do you, how do you think that turned out? So you're sending a bunch of teenagers to Hiles Anderson? Yeah. So Scott was trying to ramp up Hiles Anderson admissions. Because remember, Hiles Anderson is another golden goose because the textbooks for Hiles Anderson come almost entirely from... Hiles Publications. Right, from Hiles Publications. Yeah, so this is like the same scam as professors assigning their own books as required reading. Uh Like Gilderoy Lockhart. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so it seems like, wow. So Jack Scoff is just running the same exact grift as Jack Hiles, except on a larger scale because he's more desperate for money. Right. So Scoff is making money two ways out of this, right? Because he's fundraising for the missionaries and then he's getting all these more more people at Hiles Anderson and like reinvigorating Hiles Anderson's missions program. And then he's also soliciting donations from for the missionaries from Hiles Anderson kids. This is burning the candle at both ends. There. Yeah, exactly. So the rest of the money, Scott tried to grift it from large-scale donors like Russell Anderson, who co-founded Hiles Anderson. Uh, also, Jack DeCoster, who is a chicken farmer from Iowa, who donated a lot of money to Hiles Anderson in the early days. Uh, both men were friends of Hiles, and they both supported Scott in the beginning. 
But just as the recession hit and everyone was on financial hard times, Scott managed to do something that ticked off not only his large donors, but also about half of fundamentalism. So what did he do? Because this seems like an inopportune time. Maybe you should have kept his mouth shut. Yeah, I, I agree. Scott's not good at that. You'll, you'll find out later. More, okay. More later. <sighs> so what did he do? Well, so what Scott did? He had a different and, if I can say, more reasonable view on the King James Bible version than some other IFB preachers did. So knowing what I know about the IFB, um, I'm going to say that anything that's more reasonable is probably from the devil. Uh, That would be bingo. Yes. So uh, my explanation is going to be vastly oversimplified because I don't want to bore 90% of the audience to tears. (laughs) The IFB position at the time, and still. uh, So there are a couple things you need to understand. Number one, that God verbally inspired the Bible when it was spoken word by word into the ears of the original scribes. And then those guys wrote it down by hand, word for word, exactly what God said. So literally, they believe that God spoke every word of the Bible to Moses, to David or Daniel or John or Paul or whoever. And then those guys wrote down word for word exactly what he said. And this is called the doctrine of verbal inspiration. So like, so so that's inspiration. The other doctrine about the Bible is preservation. So the IFB believes that God preserved the Bible miraculously. Most Christians take this to mean that when it was copied down by other scribes who shared it with then other people that God miraculously helped them to make sure that it got transcribed correctly. Hold on. So this means that literally every Bible translation is correct. Uh no, quite quite the opposite. So so the Bible gets compiled into the canonical books which is meant exactly the same way that you might say like is Batman versus Superman canon or not? The early church decided again with God's miraculous guidance which books are in and which books are out. A thousand years after that, we're at the point where the Bible is first translated into English by uh, John Wycliffe. Oh, I know him. So he's from Fuji's, right? What? He the hips don't lie with Shakira. I just didn't know that the Bible translation guy was a was a time traveler. Apparently, I think he's Haitian, right? Yeah, he's Haitian. He, I think he ran for president of Haiti. Okay, I seriously have to look this up now. Anyway, the the historical John Wycliffe uh, used the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the scriptures that was currently being used by the Catholic Church. He used that Latin translation to translate the Bible into English for the first time ever in English. So there are years and years worth of controversy about the several Greek versions in the Latin Vulgate that were in use at the same time. You could literally do an entire po- uh, entire podcast on that. I'm going to restrain myself for time. The end of the story is English-speaking Christians who were not Catholics wanted to be able to read the Bible in their language. So a version was commissioned by King James of England, who was uh, definitely gay, by the way. Super gay. King James? Oh my God. Super, super gay. Uh, Anyway, King James uh, assembled scholars who could speak both Greek and Latin and English, and most of them were uh, could use about six or seven languages. And with the guidance of Wycliffe's English translation that was made a few hundred years before, and using original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic texts, and using the Latin Vulgate, they they put all of this information together to translate what we have now as the King James Version, which was completed in 1611. So here's the controversy. We made it. We did it. That's it. (laughs) We did it. That was it. So it turns out 
Many IFBs believed and still believe that God re-inspired the King James Version translators when they worked on the King James. So remember, inspiration is interpreted as God speaking into someone's ears and literally telling them what to say. So this faction of the IFB believes that God didn't just help or assist the King James translators in getting it right, that God was more involved than that, that God actually told them in English in their ears what words to use when they made this translation. Well, Scop said that's ridiculous. God helped the King James Version translators a.k.a. Doctrine of Preservation, God helped them make sure they got it right, but God didn't re-inspire the King James Version. The Bible was inspired when it was written the first time when God spoke it into the ears of the original guys that wrote it down, you know, Daniel and Moses and those guys. So, Scott actually has a pretty, a, a more reasonable view because these IFBs are saying that God spoke it again into the ears of the King James translators. Anyway, Scop's view does make more sense, but it caused all hell to break loose on Jack Scop from his IFB pastor contemporaries. But we've talked before about the IFB and the need to like separate from people who hold different doctrinal opinions than you. So predictably, a large section of the IFB began to feel the need to separate from Jack Scop. This meant lower pastor school attendance, lower Hiles Anderson attendance, and protesters outside of pastor school, all kind of crazy stuff. The protest over this? Yeah, there were protesters no, outside Lord, of pastor oh school. I, I was, again, this is something I was there for. I was actually there when there were protesters. No, dude, sandwich signs, this is, costumes. This is such nerd. There was like a brawl in the alley between the old auditorium and the new auditorium. They got into a fight over this? There was dude. a brawl oh with, with Hiles Anderson, like preacher boys. And and these protesters, it was it was messy. Ugh. Anyway, <laughs> this is, so I know like I know like this Baptist drama is like super niche to explain, but it, this is so weird. I know, but it does turn out being important. It's like to me, like this makes no sense to me. Well, the the root of this drama is a little bit important because what this is showing us, Scott as Hyle's successor and as the de facto leader of the IFB. Scott wanted to move the IFB into a more modern, relatable direction. The coffee shop, totally new concept of missions, the better graphic design, the using a website, and now this whole like KJV controversy. These are all ways in which Scott was trying to be more modern, which came off as liberal. So Scott even began to associate with pastors of Oh no, non-denominational churches. Scott was single-handedly trying to bring the IFB kind of half, if you can think of like, Scott is trying to get one foot of the IFB into the 21st century. And people were not happy about that. Well, you can't bring people into the 21st century if they're still in the 19th century. Well, that's what Scott was trying to do, though. He was trying, he wanted to have one foot planted in the 19th century with all the old beliefs, with the, the racism and the misogyny and all that good stuff. Uh, but he also wanted his other foot, metaphorically, in the 21st century. With the trendy building, with the on-trend color scheme, with the, the slick graphic design, with his coffee shop and his associating with non-denominational pastors and his less extreme views on the King James Bible. Does that make sense, like, what he's trying to do? Yes. Yeah, he's trying to do both. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. He also, like, he wanted this church to look, like, modern and fun because he wanted to attract, like, more young people. 
And the reason that this is really important in the grand scheme of understanding the IFB movement is that all of this birthed the new IFB. So now in, in 2020, we are pretty much dealing with two separate groups, the old IFB and the new IFB. The, the new IFB are people that Scott made mad. Uh, that's, again, an oversimplification. We'll do an episode one day. I was going to say that this like clearly sets him apart from Jack Howells, but I I can't help thinking that causing theological controversies is pretty much on par for everything that the IFB does. Yeah. One of the big issues here is that Hiles was a big part of why the King James Version was so revered among the IFB. The King James Version was one of Hiles' sticking points, even um, even like one thing that he really had against other denominations. Uh, Hiles actually had a, a, like a friend breakup with a close preacher friend because that friend sat on a committee about a new Bible translation. People in the IFB were ridiculously attached to Hiles. We're talking about just five or six years after his death. I mean, I used to go to conferences and sit in the row behind. There was a church called Hiles Baptist Church. Hmm. I mean, there are also churches called King James 1611 Baptist Church. They're so attached to both Jack Hiles and the King James Version. So Scop is basically seen as spitting on Hiles' grave with every change that he makes, but especially with this King James Version thing. So all of these people who are super, super close to Hiles, who already resented Scop for being the guy who took over for Hiles, are done with him. So this is what passes for modern in the IFB. I've got to ask. Did he make any changes to the IFB's history of like sexist doctrine or being repressive towards women? Because I feel like that's if you're going to modernize, that should be like, yeah, about that, about that. So that's the second part of the Scott controversy. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Gabrielle here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Leaving Eden podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. So we've talked about him, like, getting all of this antagonism from inside the IFB, about the the KJV and other modern things. 
the other half of this is about attention that he gets from outside the church over some now famous comments about women and sexuality. So this is where it gets really weird. Remember we talked about Scott is trying to have one foot in the old times and one foot super modern. Well, the foot that was in the super modern times got him in trouble with the old IFB people. The foot that he wanted to still have in the 19th century is about to get him in trouble with, you know, people who are not IFB. So in 2005, Scott published a book called Marriage, the Divine Intimacy. I'm intrigued, but this like sounds low-key horrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so Scott published quite a few books on marriage. It was one of the things he was supposedly uh, an expert on, which is a little bit interesting because that's one of the things that Hiles rarely talked about. Hiles wrote one like 50-page pamphlet on marriage. And that's it. And Scott writes all these books about it. But anyway, uh, in this book, Scott made some really gross and twisted claims about what a godly marriage looks like. If I am a good Christian boy and I have gone to Hiles Anderson College and through the grace of God, I have met a beautiful young woman who is within three years of my own age <laughs> through a teacher who set us up together. According to Jack Scott, what do I need to know about having a godly marriage? Okay, so number one, you need to be as familiar with God's commandments as you are with your wife. In, okay, check. In a sexual sense. <laughs> so so here's the quote from the book. Uh, this is from Divine Intimacy. Uh, Psalm 119.30 says, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. That word laid is a sexual term, which literally means the same thing as a man laying with a woman. God was saying that God's laws should be as intimate as a marriage partner in a sexual liaison. End quote there. Uh, so, what, like, <sighs> what? Wait, so, like, basically, they're, yeah, so, so basically, what they've done is they've said, okay, well, in English, these two words have the, have the same meaning. No, Scott what? claimed that the Hebrew word that is translated in the King James as laid is a Hebrew, is a sexual term in Hebrew. That's what Scott claimed. I don't know whether or not that's true, but I am 100% sure that that's wrong. I have, I, I mean, I've heard him say that in person. If Jack Scott said it, there is a 100,000% chance that that is not true. And, and I've heard him say that in person, not just in this book. This is something he harped on a bit. Let me, okay, let me find my my book sorry oh no I, go for it okay so it's psalm 119:30 yep 119:30 here's what it says in the jewish publication service version which is i mean this is this is your holy book and this is what your people have to say about it so i i take that pretty seriously this is what it says i have chosen the way of faithfulness Thine ordinances have I set before me. Yes, yeah, he set is not uh, not real sexy. This is literally just like I think this word like like this is the translation to English. Well, the, in English, this word also means this word, so I'm going to use that to like. It's like playing. Did you ever watch? Um, what was it? There was a. a what show was it? There was a TV show where there was a joke that they were playing some game show called Homonym. Oh, that was sounds it like Parks and Rec, but I don't know. That sounds like something they would say on Parks and Rec. <laughs> it might have been 
Yeah, I can't remember what TV show it was when they would be like, oh... uh, Somebody will email us and tell us what it is. Yeah, there was like homonym. They were playing some TV show, some game show called homonym where they would be like, which which one is it? It's this one or this one? And they say they're like, no, it's the other one. Oh my gosh. Anyway, like if you know what we're talking, like that's how this seems to me. This is just such... If you know what TV show that is, uh, email us. Please do, or just DM me on Instagram or something. Um, yeah. That's what n- level of nonsense this seems to me. Well, I mean, but okay, listen to the next one. I, I hope you still have your, your book open. So, okay. same page of Scop's book, he says, uh, in the next verse, David gets more graphic. I have stuck unto thy testimonies, O Lord, put me not to shame. That word stuck means the act of a man entering his wife. It is sexual intercourse. God says that God, I was saying, still quoting Scott, God says that the word of God should be the Christian's lover and nothing should be closer to him than the Bible. The words of God are supposed to be the most intimate lover of his life. Okay, so this is what it says. It says, I cleave unto thy testimonies. Oh, Lord, put me not to shame. Cleave, I guess cleave could be sexual if you want to get like super raunchy, but. Well, you wouldn't know this, but like when Jesus talks about marriage, um, uh, therefore shall a man leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Um, I think Jesus quotes that and I think it's originally in Genesis, but Jesus does like a callback to it. Um, okay. but it, it is, I mean, it, it is a word that's that's used to refer to marriage, but I don't, I don't have any reason to think it's as sexy as Scott says it was. This all seems like a bunch of absolute nonsense. I mean, it is. So like... So Scott goes on to say, he says that receiving Christ as Savior is equivalent to, quote, spiritual intercourse. Uh, he says that we receive Christ as lover. Uh, and then we. he also says that when a wife, quote, receives her husband, gag, uh, she is receiving Christ. So that sex within Christian marriage is a type of spiritual communion. So I'm not going to lie. Spiritual intercourse sounds like something that you might hear in like a Prince song. Oh, sure. Like one of his like really artsy, slow, like R&B slow jams. Oh, yeah. And I don't have a problem with that. It's just that. I might I might actually make a song called Spiritual Intercourse. That sounds kind of. You know what? You go for that. Yeah. But but for these IFB people, though, like these people take their sexual purity in extremely seriously. So the suggestion of God as a sexual being was simply appalling to these people. And in my opinion, I think. Provocative. Really, it made a lot of people very, very mad. I don't doubt it. <laughs> so I think this is Scott testing the waters of how sexual he could get away with being from behind the pulpit. So by this time, like he starts delivering these sermons, like you're a young adolescent girl. So mm-hmm. how do you how do you feel like these like do you feel like these ideas had any particular effect on you? Like you so you told us that you were like 16 and in the audience for the polished shaft sermon oh boy yeah uh yeah so divine intimacy came out when i was 12 so of course i wasn't i wasn't allowed to read it i wasn't allowed anywhere near it i i heard kind of whispers of what was in it but i didn't really experience like that particular backlash but i do think that book like that was scott testing the waters because after this he becomes more and more sexual in preaching and there are several sermons that i was actually there for that I feel are a direct result of this. So the first one, it wasn't SCOP. I'm not sure what the conference was, but I think it was Lady Spectacular or Pastor School. And I think it was 2006, but I could be way off on that one. Honestly, I was so embarrassed and like mortified by this whole thing that I do not know what year it was. But I was at this this conference where uh, Tom Williams, who is a friend of SCOP's, 
preached an extremely sexual sermon to an audience of all female attendees. Uh, So basically, this sermon was just like Cosmo, but from the 80s and with a heavy dose of you have to do this to your husband because of Jesus. So it was it was like the standard IFB line of like, don't ever turn your husband down for sex, no matter what. That's a standard line. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's that goes all the way. That goes all the way from like the Duggars to like the IFB to like Amish, like that, like um, there are lots of groups and I won't say all, all Amish, but some Amish communities, there are groups all over the board of fun- Christian fundamentalists who believe this, um, even like more quote unquote modern, like pants wearing Christian fundamentalists, Southern Baptist women, like hmm. you can hear this all sorts of places is what I'm saying. Uh, but it's that, but it's also like tips on what kind of lingerie men like. Um, IFBs are like super obsessed with lingerie. It's a thing. It's And it was like, this sermon, I wanted to die as a teenager. Because it represents sexuality, like in a, in a visual sense. Like- right. And also because you are, remember, you're in a culture where you wear floor length denim skirts. And right. like, so that's, uh, that's like the sexiest thing they can think of. As a teenager, you don't like you're hearing this. You don't know anything about sex right. except that if you do it and you're not married, you end up in hell. Well, you get pregnant and die like mean girls. <laughs> so it's got to be really, really weird to have this preached at you in church. Right. Like, I mean, there are like, and Scott would use like sexual terms from the pulpit that I did not know how to define. I didn't know what he was talking about. And so. Like, as, you know, the first messaging I'm getting about sex at all is uh, it hurts. It's not going to be fun for you most of the time. And you have to do it anytime your husband wants to. Oh, and also, um, you have to be like a wild sex vi- sex vixen to please your husband or he will cheat on you and it'll be your fault. Oof. Yeah. So that's like the messaging that's that I'm terrible. getting. Yeah, it's a lot. So the, the next like super sexual sermon uh, is way worse. I'm sorry to tell you. Worse? Oh, dude, Ugh. it's like 10 times worse than what I just described. Um, I know. So I was in a teen session at Ladies Spectacular, uh, and I would have been 16, so October of 2009, I believe. So Scott comes in to preach directly to the teenage girls. Oh, no. Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Bad, oh, like- yes. Oh, yes, it is. So I've mentioned before that that he has gained all of this star power. Like he has charisma a lot like his father-in-law did. And I remember like hundreds of teenage girls in this room standing and cheering when he came in. It was completely like being at a concert. So he smiled and waved to all of us. And it was like the highlight of our week that he, that he came in to speak to just us, just us teenage girls. Just the ladies. Just, just the, just the minor ladies. This is a song for the ladies. This is a song for the ladies under 18. If you're under 18. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. It's gross. Um, so Scott's topic for the day, when he's going to speak to this audience that is full of minors, he decided to preach on dress dress code and modesty. Scott gets up in front of, uh, uh, this is probably a CW worthy, by the way. This is just, it's just plain gross. Um, yeah. Scott gets up in front of this room full of girls. And for his entire sermon, all he talks about is the, like, the, quote, bad things that we teenage girls wear and how they cause temptation to him and how they cause temptation to other men. So specifically, I remember him talking about tight skirts, how our teenage legs are so sexy and that if our skirt is too tight, it's a temptation to him. 
and he's talking to Ew. a group of teenagers. There are there are very few. There are maybe three adults in this room with him and hundreds of teenage girls. So I remember him talking at length about. So this is 2009. So people were wearing like those little like silk tank top camisoles with like lace trim at the top. It was like a layering thing that people wore. Yeah, it was a thing. And we always had to wear tank tops under our shirts to like make our neckline high enough for dress check. And so those silk, those like silky kind of ones were really popular. Scop went on and on about how those look just like lingerie. And he tells this very detailed story about a teenager uh, who bent over to have him sign her Bible and what exactly he saw when he, quote, accidentally, I'm doing the world's biggest air quotes, accidentally looked down her shirt. Wow. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know this is really, really freaking gross. I'm really sorry. And how old is he at this point? He was born in what, 1950? He was born in 50. He's around Dave's age, I think. So uh, he's, I mean, he's probably 50 or or just about to be 50, maybe. Ew. In 2009, 52, I think, maybe. Ew. Yeah. No, this is gross. And then the same, I think the same night, if not the same night, then like the next night, uh, Scott rehashes his divine intimacy stuff for all the ladies at the ladies conference in the evening session. So children and teenagers and adults, which is even more awkward because I happened to be sitting with Richard's mom at the time. <laughs> um, so I'm sitting with the mom of the the, the boy and kind of casually saying and Scop is going through all this like sexual stuff and I don't know what he's talking about. And oh, it was so uncomfortable. Just literally like one of the most uncomfortable moments of my life. Wow. So all this to say, though, I think it's super clear by 2009 that Scop is not thinking in a way that is pure in any sense of the word. Well, so I know enough about the IFB to have some sort of picture about where this is headed. Yeah. Yeah. So I also want to point out that he said like these more explicit things when he was the only man in a room full of hundreds of women. So I want to know what you think about this, because to me, it comes off as both kind of an exhibitionism thing, and it comes off as like a major dominance power play kind of thing. Like, so I was there, and I really, my perception really truly is, I think he was getting off on this feeling like he could say anything to us, and we were a captive audience. Because women have no power. It's not like these women could have gone and done something about it. Like, even if they complained to their husbands, what would have happened? Nothing. Of course, nothing. I mean, what would the husbands do about it? No, nothing. Tell their wives, they, oh, no, honey, you don't have to be sexually available no matter what. Ugh. Oh, no, honey, you shouldn't feel obligated to be super sexy all the time. And if I cheat on you, it's not your fault. So, like, like are men really going to be, like, are these IFB men going to be good guys like that? No, of course they're not. Scop is making a literal army of Stepford wives. And, and this directly benefits the, the husbands. So even if the wives did complain to their husbands, the, the the men don't have any incentive at all to fight it other than being a decent human being. But even if these men didn't want their wives liberated, they must have had daughters. I mean, I know like some of the I know the IFB preachers are like like the IFB preaches all sorts of woman hating theological nonsense. But like there have to have been some men in this situation who would have like had their wives tell them about what Jay, what 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 Jack Scop said, and realized that there was something very wrong going on here. So I mean I don't know, but here's my guess for how I think this played out. 
Many wives just accepted what he said and did it without saying anything to their husbands. Because, like, this is the pastor, like, what he says I'm supposed to do. And, you know, the husbands just, like, got this boost in attention from their wife and never really thought anything of it. Uh, I think there were definitely wives who did tell their husbands. So if the husband was sold out to the, the IFB, First Baptist Church, he would see it as, you know, this is the best thing for my marriage. This is the way that God made things to be. My wife is showing that she loves me by submitting to me and God. And along the same lines, I think that these fathers are thinking that their daughters are going to be blessed to be that same submissive wife to another man one day. Because these people have been sold, like, this is God's perfect plan for your relationship. This is the only way to be happy in marriage. So they believed it. I mean, this just seems so wild to me. Like, I've got to ask, so like, when you heard this, did you believe that this was your duty? Because you were pretty sold out at this point. Yeah. I did. I did see this as my duty in marriage eventually. But more than that, like I saw like this is all that marriage could ever be for me. This is all that life will ever be for me is being subservient to men. Like I knew that I would never be able to choose how I dressed or where I lived or what I did because all of those decisions would be made by God through my husband and my pastor. And this is par for the course as a woman in the IFB that you aren't so much a person with your own agency, but you're an object or like an asset to be treasured or protected or utilized or kept away from any sort of dangerous or compromising situation, you know, like a watch or a house. or So you're like basically a living, breathing family heirloom. Yeah, I, I think that's that's dead on. It, it is the pinnacle of objectification, because I think when we talk about feminism and feminist theory, we define objectification more narrowly. Like uh, when a man looks at you and just sees a collection of body parts that he finds attractive and not a person like that, that's objectification. When a man sees you as a collection of parts or like like a like a living sex toy of some kind. Like, yes, that's objectification. But so is seeing a living, breathing person as an asset, as a baby making machine, uh, like like that is also objectification when you are treated like an asset. Like I usually say like a car, like, yeah, you feel like as a woman in the IFB, you're an appliance. Yes, absolutely. You can absolutely get the impression that your life is worth about as much as like a nice new car. Like, I don't know, like a new Honda Accord, like a de- <sighs> like a decent new car. Like not like a Rolls Royce. Oh, no, uh-uh. not like a Mercedes, but you're. You're like a like a, a Honda like you yeah you're like a you're a Honda Accord yeah base model Impreza wow. sure wow yeah i so so all of this and and i can't speak for anyone else's experience but i absolutely believe that i was less of a person less of a human uh than a man so i think that it's a good to end this episode here because i think that this is the uh, i this is the point i think where it's most relevant in the story arc because it sets up basically what's going to be happening next. Mm-hmm. Because how I see it, this ministry under Jack Scop is the logical conclusion to the ministry um, under Jack Hiles in particular. That everything that's been leading up to this point, basically from 1959 until basically where we are in the story around 2009, 2010, a lot of the things have stayed pretty much the same in the cult. So the same like repressive doctrines, the same like, anachronistic interpretation of various scripture passages, like the same narcissism, the same like financial double dealing. I mean, the same need to separate people from the outside world, but like 
One thing that I've seen in particular get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And that's uh, with regards to the way that women are treated within this cult. um, I like in America, and I think that uh, for most of the world, things aren't like 100% perfect for women, but I don't feel like I should need to say that. But (laughs) there has been a lot. Yeah, there's been a lot of progress made over the past like 50 to 60 years. Like things are are better now that they they're not where they should be, but they're better now than they used to be. But in the IFB, how I'm seeing is that they see that progress and they need to go backwards, especially with this idea that we keep talking about of separation from the outside world. And this is embodied within the behavior of the cult's leadership. So from the 60s through the 80s, we got to see Jack Hiles have extramarital affairs, be verbally abusive towards his wife, be a gaslighter, a manipulator, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Then... We saw David Hiles, Jack Hiles' son, next generation, and things get a whole lot worse. And with David Hiles, he's committing sex crimes, he's having tons of affairs, he's physically abusive. However, while the church is not directly responsible for this, they are active in the cover-up for his crimes and for his behavior. Right. There is that, an active cover-up. You're, you're right about that. Now... With the Jack Scott ministry, I'll tell you what I'm seeing. And I am seeing a switch from the church excusing away and tolerating and turning a blind eye to the sort of violence against women to this church. And I don't, I don't know why I keep calling it a church, because I really just need to keep calling it a cult. But I see this cult laying the foundations to actively being involved in the perpetration of abuse. It started with, with Jack Hiles. This final phase of it started in the 90s, I think, with Jack Scott with dating with a purpose, you know, with that dating manual that he put out in the 90s, in which young people were conditioned to accept this idea that the cult would take a more active role in their relationships and their sexuality, and continued on to where we see Jack Scott and men of his ilk pushing their personal sexual preferences onto every woman who is a cult member. And remember, In episode four, in the dating episode, they had a class at Hiles Anderson about, quote unquote, Christian womanhood. And the ideal woman was to look like Jack Scott's wife and how he wanted a woman to look. Uh Uh-huh. Then here we are now in this story and this situation of where Jack Scott is in a room full of women alone, basically him and a bunch of women alone, telling them the ways that they need to be sexually available. I think that when we come back into the next episode of this series in two weeks for the final part about Jack Scott's downfall, the IFB's treatment of women and the steady degradation of the IFB's treatment of women, in my opinion, is the primary cause for that downfall. I think that is a super good take because... Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I went on for a while about no, that. No, that. that is okay. I was, I was interested listening to you. Yes, I think um, if you look at the way that people spoke and if you like, I have just been digging into these sermons. Um, so side note, Jack Heil sermons are like weirdly soothing to me to listen to because I listened to them all the time as kid as a kid. Wow. So it actually it doesn't weird me out to listen to, to Heil sermons all day long. Um, Scott sermons will give me nightmares because I still have nightmares about him. He's a weirdo. But but yes, Heil's like really... Hiles would never put down a woman. Like, Hiles was very, like, an old-fashioned gentleman kind of guy on the outside. Like, that's how he portrayed himself. 
and Hiles would put down and humiliate and mock male staff members. But it was emasculating. Right. And where we get to is Scop did that only in private. So Scop was really well known for having a filthy mouth and cussing people out in, in staff meetings and, and dropping all kind of curse words that these people barely even knew. Um, Scop was super well known for that. And I'll tell you, I heard stories about Scop cussing people out in staff meetings before uh, 2012. Like I was still in high school when I was hearing these stories about him Oof. from people who had worked for him. And that, and that in the IFB, that's like, Oh man, this guy's real. Like, yeah, he only got away with that because he was super high level. But it, anyway, um, well, Scop is like known for degrading and humiliating, mocking men in private, but he never did that in public. In public, he is always about like women being submissive, women following the dress standards and like very and, and um, there's a clip I want to play in a minute about some things that he said about women. He not only got attention from inside the IFB, he got a lot more attention from outside the IFB. Uh, about some things that he said about women. Um, the clip that I want to play you got him attention from outlets as national as ABC's 2020. Wow. Mm. So, yeah, um, take a listen to this clip. ABC News called me this week and said, uh, we heard that you um, believe that men should be in charge of their wives. I says, no, sir. No, sir, I didn't say that. I said, God said that. He said, husbands are the head of the wife. I said, if you got a problem with what I said, I'm quoting the Bible, maybe I'll take it up with God. He says, do you, do you think that's appropriate? I said, son, I says, anything God says is appropriate, and you better get that straight right now. I never apologize for standing where God stands. I never worry standing where God stands. Somebody says, you know what they're going to say about you? Who cares? Stand in line, pick a number, slob. Get your little squirt gun out and squirt away. Bigger things to worry about. Heaven, hell, life, death. The Bible, what people say about you, not at all. If they're quoting me while I'm quoting the Bible, hallelujah, God's word is getting out. Don't you ever worry about your pastor being rattled or worried or unsettled or unnerved. I sleep fine. Too many people worried about uh, 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 somebody the other day asked me, they, uh, this, this reporter, he said, um, I heard that you, um, you wouldn't, that it'd be a cold day in hell before you get your theology from a woman. He says, don't you kind of think that's demeaning to the genders? I says, ask Adam what he thought about getting his theology from a woman. I said, it damned the whole world. I said, the reason your soul, sorry, soul's going to hell is because a woman told Adam what God thinks about things. He says, you're pretty strong about what you believe. I said, not half as strong as what God knows you ought to believe. I wouldn't get my theology from a woman. I don't mind if mama teaches the kids. I don't mind if a strong lady and a wise woman and a gracious, godly woman uh, follows the, takes the lesson from the pastor. Hey, oh, you listen to me right now? I still believe it'd be a cold day in hell before I get my theology from a woman. I'm a preacher. I, I wasn't mama called, papa sent. No woman ever got me involved in the ministry. I didn't follow a woman in the ministry. A woman didn't write this book. Not one woman wrote the scriptures right here. A man wrote the Bible, got it from God. A man hung on the cross. His name is Jesus Christ. And God called a man to lead the church here. Hey, I'm glad I'm a man. So many of you got nervous. Saw the preacher on the news. Praise the Lord. The word of God is being quoted. 
More than some of you are doing about getting the Word of God out. I don't care about being politically correct. I don't care who had hair lips. I don't care if it bothers everybody from the White House or old man sitting in the outhouse. I want to know what's going on in the church house, and I'm the messenger of the church, and what I say is more important than what the news reporter thinks I ought to say. God didn't call him to tell me what to do, and God didn't call anybody else either. You know, if that's arrogant, so be it. The, pr- the, the problem is it's the truth in the scriptures here. And if you ever wanted to know what the IFB thought about women, there's your answer. Um, yeah, and I was there yeah. when he said that. Just oh. in case you were wondering, I could tell you, I could probably take you to the exact seat I was sitting in. I was on the, um, well, let's see, stage. If we put a video up, you'll be able to see the back of your head. <laughs> probably, I mean, possibly if the camera's on the wrong, if the camera's at the right angle. No, I was a uh, stage, stage left, audience right, front section of the auditorium, close to the back of that front section. So almost like where the where the balcony comes over, but I could point you exactly where I was sitting. Wow! Was there? So I think with that, um, we're going to end this episode. Uh, we will come back in two weeks um, from now, and that'll be part five. And this is basically like up till now, this has been like the calm before the storm. Almost the real fireworks are going to start um, in that episode when we do that one because, and and that'll take us up to the present day and where Sadie is going to get to talk about. Um, the ongoing efforts related to this and the fact that she has actually gotten to be a part of. So stay tuned for that. Uh, until next time. Uh, yeah. Next week is super exciting to me because next week is entirely things that I was there for. Um, just all my own personal stories about, about this man. Um, next week, I also have some audio for, for you. Um, I have an audio recording from inside a cult um, that was not, made public and was never supposed to get out. So I hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, and then I also I also get to talk about a, a, quite a bit of things that I was actually there for uh, and what I'm doing now. So, wow. yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm bubbling yeah. over. I'm super excited about, about the next episode in the series. This is exciting. And you will, you will want to tune in for that one. That's going to be in two weeks. But next week, we're going to talk about some normal stuff. Um, as normal. always, you can... <laughs> Yeah, you can find uh, you can find this podcast on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Leaving Eden Podcast. Um, I think on Twitter it's at Leaving Eden Pod. Um, if you've got questions, if you've got you know anything you want to know about, you can send us an email at leavingedenpod at gmail dot com. Uh, if uh, you want to find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, I'm Gabriel Hakoen. G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Sadie? Oh, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music and on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie. And that's where we're going to end it. Uh, I hope that you guys have a nice day and be sure to tune in next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.